Good morning, and welcome, welcome, welcome to No Easy Answer, the podcast where we explore various topics, themes, actions, and reactions from around the world through a biblical perspective, or at least trying to. Welcome back. This is my first podcast since maybe early January. Maybe this might even be my first podcast in all of 2021. Woo! Woo! It has been busy. And and I did a little podcast just to give a little bit of an update to say where I was at. Um, part of the reason I was out was that I was doing a Bible study with the church that I'm part of, and it's called Immersion. It was very good, but it was very intense. It was going through the whole New Testament in eight weeks, so it meant like 30 to 45 minutes of reading every single day, and that just sucked up my time, um, which was good. Don't get me wrong. It was very good. I highly recommend it. Very, very, very awesome. Uh, but that put me behind schedule on a lot of things, and so I had to play catch up on that, and there's no way it's getting podcasts out, and some of the topics I'm talking about require a little more research and digging, and I was like, I just, I just can't. I just can't. And I just had too much on my plate, and then something had to go, and so these podcasts had to go, but they're back. They're back. So we will be getting back into another Bible study, hopefully, in about a month, uh, but the week after Easter, I think we'll pick it back up, but we're not going to be doing the same type of model, so hopefully the whole shame issue of like, no, I'm sorry, I didn't do my my four hours of reading over the week, no, I've only done, <laughs> I didn't do any reading, I, then I'm not going to go to Bible study, why would I go, hopefully that, that whole dynamic is out, so now we can just show up and be together and learn together and make it happen together, so all that to say, I'm back, and, and, I've been talking about this arc, this theme, this topic of violence for the longest time, and I'm still working through it, and my topic for today, which I was supposed to be talking about, genocide, I'm actually going to preempt to something else because of recent events. Uh, oh, and one other quick update, I'm, I live in Texas, so we survived the freeze, we went six days without electricity and water. I'm going to be going to my parents' place with the exact same amount of time without electricity, without water. And so, thankfully, um, we probably could have made it in our own place just fine, but we wanted to be with them just to make sure we had more warm bodies together and they were generous enough to receive us into their house. So we stayed there a little bit. They had a little bit bigger of a fireplace, so just split wood like crazy. And thankfully, they had a bunch of wood left over from when they cleared out their, their building pad in like 2007 and so I was out splitting oldy moldy firewood but it kept us warm so we managed to get through that and we only had one pipe break in our house so we had to cut out just a little bit of drywall and get that fixed up and finding plumbing parts was extremely difficult anyways we got all that so we're back in the middle of all that <laughs> we're back uh, and so here we are on the 18th of March 2021 starting again well, I was actually hoping to do this, this is a Thursday, but I was actually hoping to get to this on a Monday, but I thought, no, a current event just happened, and, and I, I can't keep myself away, and I want to jump into it, because it, it is, it's a tragedy, first of all. I'm talking about um, the shooting that occurred in Atlanta yesterday, where a man 
um, and I forgot his name, and maybe that's good on purpose, but um, he ended up killing eight people. Thus far, there's another one that's also severely injured. Like, he got shot in the forehead, and the bullet went into his, his brain, and then went down his neck and into his lungs. I, oh my gosh. I don't know how he's still alive. Anyways, Lord have mercy on him. Um, but he targeted these massage parlors, and multiple of the, of the victims are Asian women. And they are... They, uh, they passed away from the gunshots that this guy did, and he attacked, I think, three different parlors and was probably on a way to attack another. So, um, I just learned about this yesterday after I got home from work, and I didn't have much time to look into it, but I started reading some things, and it, it just kind of impacted me, uh, especially some of the responses to it. And, and it really, this is a complicated mess and there's a lot of stuff flying out of this and before even getting into anything else I mean I think the most important the most important thing to recognize here and the most tragic thing is that there are eight people and possibly nine people who are no longer alive they're no longer here and their families are bereft they're without uh, their mothers they're Mothers without daughters, sisters without their sisters, brothers without their sisters. And that eight people are no longer on this planet because of the actions of one person. And I guess one of the most tragic things, but it's par for the course, I hate to say it, and even biblically, is is that these eight people that have died um, really are... They're just forgotten in everything. They're just absolutely forgotten. I mean, when Cain killed Abel, the rest of the story focuses on Cain. Abel's name is the smoke, it's the vapor, and I mentioned that in previous podcasts. And and sadly, these these victims are also smoke. They have just disappeared. And now what's being talked about, discussed, has really not much to do with them as as who they were and who's um, really has to do with bigger topics. And and we're gonna get into those too, but I. It would, it would be absolutely wrong of me to jump into something like this without even talking about the victims and, and the suffering that's there. It is so easy just to go beyond that and try to look at motives, why, da-da-da, and we focus on the perpetrator, but we really don't see anything from the perspective of the victims, and, and they are the ones that have lost. They are the ones that are no longer with us. Um, and sadly, I think in our culture where we, we consume so much violent content through movies and everything, I, I don't know if the studies actually prove that makes us more violent, but I think, if anything, it makes us very insensitive towards those who have lost because we see people getting killed, people getting attacked, people getting brutalized time and time and time and time again, and there's really no mercy because it's like, oh, those are the bad guys, and so now we don't think about it. And I, I'm pretty sure I've mentioned this in a different podcast, but I remember um, after I'd been in Venezuela for a few years, I, I'd, I'd come up to the States, and I didn't have a TV in Venezuela, so I, did, I stopped watching TV, I stopped watching programs, stopped watching movies, just none of that, none of it. Um, and the context I was in was extremely violent, and many people died, and it was a very sad and difficult process when someone had to go and, and be buried. We had a velorio, it's kind of like a wake, um, 
for them and you saw the family members that were distraught and you didn't see them anymore. They were gone and, and you felt that loss when they were no longer there. And so coming from that context, coming back to the States, I, I went to see a movie with somebody and uh, I think it was uh, the one old Christopher Nolan Batman movies with, uh, with the Joker and just in the first few minutes of the movie, I was just about ready to get up and walk out because I, I was just so traumatized because in the first few minutes, I don't know how many people got killed just in that first little bank robbing scene. And all I could think about is who's going to tell them that their son is dead? Who's going to organize the funeral? How are they going to set up the wake? That's Who's going to pay for the expense of their funeral? Is that, are they going to have to take up a collection? Are these people related? Is it multiple people within the same family? That, those are the only things I, I could think about because I was just so used to seeing everything from the perspective of the victim. I saw the aftermath of everything that was left behind when someone was gone, was taken away, was, was killed, murdered. I saw that. And so watching this movie where this was, people were dying, just bum, 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 which is a normal thing in movies, I was like, ah, it was, it was just too much for me. And I don't know, maybe I'm traumatized. I probably am. Um, I, I know I am. But it, was, it, it just shocked me to see how I internally was reacting to fictionalized violence. Um, this is not fiction. This is real life. And there are gaps left by, this, by these murders that do not heal quickly. And even though the rest of the world wants to jump into everything else, the gap is still felt there's an absence and that is felt it is not forgotten um and so I just want to take this moment just to recognize that there are eight people that are no longer here very possibly nine uh who are no longer here and they will be missed and their loss is a loss it is not uh just another case it is a tragic 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 loss Whew. Um, Every time there's an act of violence, there are multiple, multiple, multiple victims. And and it's not just the direct receivers of the violence. They obviously are the very first line of victims, but there's additional victims beyond this. And this particular incident has so many intersecting stories, we'll say, that it's very difficult to uh, try to look at it because if you look at it from one perspective, all the other stories are going to get angry that you're not looking at it from their perspective. Uh, And there's certain perspectives that will cause certain things to look in a poor light. I want to get into all of these. Um... And so it's, I, th- I think one of the most important things to understand here is, is what is the story or what are these stories? Uh, even Illich, Ivan Illich, uh, had this great quote. He has a number of good quotes. And one of the quotes that uh, I love, I love of his is, if you want to change the world, you have to tell a different story. And this is a case where there is an incident and it looks like, Everybody is trying to tell a story. Uh, everybody's trying to 
perhaps not change the world, I wouldn't say that, but at least tell their own story. And I believe, I believe the majority of the stories are 100% valid. Um, the problem is, is that when we begin to think, oh, by telling your story, all of a sudden you're invalidating my story. And that is not the case. There are, there's room for multiple stories and we need to be able to listen to each other's stories, hear each other's stories, hear each other out. If we cannot do that, we're going to be, uh, very, hmm, how would I put this? Isolated in our understanding of the world. So, with that, let's look at some of the stories here because there, there's a lot and I feel like they all need to be heard. Uh, and again, I, I want to start out with the story of the victims and, and I feel like I was trying to honor that and I probably have not done that enough and my apologies for that. Um, but continuing along the line, I feel like one of the major focuses of the media um, and a number of folks I've seen online is that this was a racially motivated killing. This was a killing that was uh, primarily done against Asian women um, or Asian American women, women of Asian descent. And that uh, as such, even though the, the perpetrator himself has not said or did not said it was not racially motivated, that there is racial motivation here. Um, again, I don't know enough about the story to say one way or the other. And I would say there's, well, there's a lot of things to say here. One, whether something is overtly racially motivated or not uh, is, is kind of beyond the point. From the victim's perspective, let's put it this way, from the victim's perspective, now that we move beyond the individual's the individual lives that were lost, these individuals belonged to a larger community. And whether the people within that community would have identified themselves with it, with as being part of the same community, is not as important as the fact that people outside of that community will identify them together as part of the same community. What do I mean by that? Let's say, and again, I, I apologize. I do not know enough about the victims, and I was not able to do enough research here. But let's say one of the victims was Vietnamese, for example. Uh, many people look at that and say, "Oh, she's an Asian American," and so they'll look at some other person of Asian descent and be like, "Yeah, you're one of them too." And maybe the person looking at it is actually Korean, or they're from Singapore, or they're Taiwanese, or they're Japanese, or they're Chinese. And the fact that the untrained eye and the un, uncultured eye will lump all those together, and I will include myself in that group, um, means that even though the Vietnamese person and the Taiwanese person consider themselves to be radically different from each other, which they are, uh, different cultures, different contexts, different climates, different all sorts of stuff, uh, different language, eye of the everyone outside of that is going to lump them together and be like, aha, you're part of the same group. Because of that, because of that, all people that share those general types of skin color, of facial, um, I'm trying to say, facial features, hair, 
unknown language, food style, all that kind of stuff. Because they're all lumped together, now everyone that, even though they're distinct within that group, now they fear because others may look at them and put them together in the same group. What I'm trying to say is that the fear within the Asian American community is is increased, and we have seen, and the media has been very keen to point this out, uh, that there have been a great number of increases in attacks against Asian Americans in the past few years, and a lot of that has had to do with the racially charged uh, environment in which we're living in, and that has been promoted, and that is a very sad thing that has happened, that is the work of the devil to try to separate and destroy and kill, and that's a lot of it. Um, and then a lot of it is just the world itself that likes to do that kind of thing on autopilot without the, without the uh, overarching aims of the devil himself. Uh, and, sadly, the church itself has pretty much not stepped up and not said anything about it. In fact, they've kind of been quietly supporting uh, many of the people that have been promoting this type of division, which is not good. Uh, we need to call things out and say this is wrong. And yes, any kind of racially motivated violence is wrong. We are all made in the image of God. And what that means is, is that my white self does not represent the wholeness of who God is. My Asian brother and sister does not represent the wholeness of who God is. But together we represent more of who God is. And then with a Latin brother and sister, we represent even more of who God is. With an African brother and sister, we represent even more of who God is. And, and the whole idea is that all of us together will represent more and more and more of who God is. The fact that God made man and female, both of them in his image, means that the male does not reflect all of God's image, nor does the female reflect all of God's image. Uh, nor together do they make God. Let's be clear about that. But... Within the human community, the more of us that there are, <laughs> and the greater diversity of us that there are, the more we're going to have a chance to actually reflect the likeness and the image of God himself. Now, uh, with that to say, as the church, we need to be very clear that, listen, yes, the, the, the racism towards our Asian brothers and sisters is just as grave and evil as the racism towards our black brothers and sisters, or towards our Latin brothers and sisters, or towards our South Asian brothers and sisters, or towards uh, our uh, Middle Eastern brothers and sisters, or our indigenous brothers and sisters, all of it. That's all wrong, because we're judging an aspect of the image of God, which is not good. That is a sin. That is wrong. Um, and then to sweep this kind of stuff under the carpet and say, oh, that doesn't happen. That uh, is also wrong. You're basically taking sin and saying, oh, it's not sin. We'll just get, oh, just toss it. We don't really need to talk about that. That's just inconvenient. Let's not go there. Well, we do need to go there. All sin needs to be dealt with. And we're going to come back to this point. Uh, this is important. <laughs> and we deal with the Lord who is willing to forgive us of our sins. And at the same time, he calls us to repentance, to repent of our sins, to no longer be part of them, to no longer have anything to do with them, to repent of them. That means to no longer practice them, turn around, rethink, change the way we're thinking, change the way we're acting, stop doing evil and start doing good. And to ignore racism is truly to persevere in sin, to say, oh, this doesn't happen. That is to persevere in ingrates, it is to persevere in sin, and that is wrong. Um... And so again, the, the rightly said by the media, the Asian American community is, uh, is a victim of this act. Now the fact that 
if you're Asian and you walk outside and you're freaked out by the next guy that walks by in a Carhartt, it's like, ugh. Yeah, that's, that's the result of, of being a victim. That's a result of a, an attack. Whether it was 100% racially motivated, 50% racially motivated, or 0% racially motivated, the fear is real. The concern is real. And that's not going to disappear by the actual perpetrator saying, no, 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 that was not racially motivated. The fact is, mm, it is. And sadly, these types of things get copycatted. These types of things get copied. And so, rightly so, yes, the Asian American community is in fear. And apparently, then there have been, I was ignorant of this, there have been other incidences of other people having been attacked simply because they're Asian, and especially with covid and people calling it the China flu or the Wuhan virus or anything like that, blaming Asian Americans have absolutely nothing to do with that. Uh, blaming them for the virus is just a terrible act of racism and ignorance, and it and the people of God should have absolutely nothing to do with it, and we should be working actively against it. So. There's one story. There's one story that the fact is people of Asian descent are living in fear and whether this was a racially motivated attack or not and although whether it was or not, the fact is they're still going to be living in fear and concern and that is a reality. That is a reality for them. Um, and again, we need to look at that. It's okay, when we talk about, okay, racially motivated, what, what does that mean exactly? And there can be so many undercurrents in our own culture that bring us to that. And it's not like, and I don't want, I'm not trying to make excuses or anything, but it, I don't want people to think, oh, it's just, I'm, I'm white. I know what this sounds like when you're hearing it. And it's especially for the first time, it's like, yeah, I don't like that. Well, trust me, America is not alone in the sin of racism. However, our particularness in this <laughs> of racism is that we do many racist things and then we have the gall to say, I'm not racist. <laughs> and nobody knows. Nobody, trust me, as, as a white person, you have no idea. Trust me, you have no idea how racist your own people are until you start living with people of color and you see from their perspective, from being with them, the treatment they receive for being that color. Uh, it's, it's, I, I don't know how to <laughs> explain it. It's, it is eye-opening. Oh my goodness. And of course, not all white people are like that. At the same time, I know as a white person, I have racist tendencies just in me. And it's just part of the culture that I grew up in. It's part of the current of the world. And it's not a good thing but it's there and I repent of it and when I see it I'm like dang it why do I do this it's just things that are in me and I've got to recognize it instead of saying like, oh yeah I'm not racist it's like no I have racist tendencies within me because of my own upbringing because of the culture in which I live and I need to repent of those things and I apologize and I repent and I beg forgiveness for all my brothers and sisters of all colors for ways in which I have not treated you with the dignity honor and respect that God would ask of me and that would be the blessing of me to give to you all. And I apologize. I apologize. I'm sorry. And I repent of it. And that is, I, I do the best I can to not repeat it. Um, nonetheless, I recognize that it's part of me. So again, 
it's not like racism is just America's only sin. No, there are multiple multicultural countries within the world. There's many, 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 many. And these issues are experienced in these countries and these places within the world and these cultures. That is typical. However, from what I've seen in the rest of the world, typically it tends, tends to be pretty open. It tends to be like, yeah, those people suck. And it's like, yeah, those people suck. They're terrible. Uh, and they make no qualms about saying, those people are bad. Here we say, oh yeah, those people are great. But then our actions and, our, and what we do afterwards is completely the opposite. So I, I think, if anything, our biggest sin is that of hypocrisy. Um, so, all to say, because it, it gets uncomfortable, and I can say this again as a white guy, it gets uncomfortable to hear this stuff time and time and time again. But you know what's even more uncomfortable? For people of color to live it time and time and time and time again. They, they can't turn that off. As a white person, you can turn off the news. You can change the channel. You don't have to listen to this kind of stuff because you're in the majority. You can kind of do whatever you want, and no one's going to look weird at you. But when you're the minority, you can't turn off your skin color. You live with it day in and day out. And even though the great majority of white people are not going to treat you like a racist, it only takes one or two. It only takes one or two, and all of a sudden, you're concerned about all of them. And, and it's true. I mean, it's, it's, it's the sad, sad, sad case. Um, and sadly, we are identified by the color of the skin. And to think that we're not, is, that's just silly. That's just absolutely silly. Uh, maybe if we all just, I'm not promoting this, I'm not saying this, but if, you know, if everybody wore hijabs and you couldn't see anybody, <laughs> all right, cool. That might be one thing. But, yeah, that's not going to happen. So, that is a definite story uh, within the story. <sighs> However, it's not the only story. And, and I, I guess the big motivation I saw that really wanted me to, to push me to get back into here was like, man, okay, I saw this. And, and I saw some comments on Facebook, and I was like, oof, all right. And that was uh, the issue that, that, the, that the shooter himself brought up. Apparently, the shooter, uh, from reports, he was a sex addict. He had tried to give himself, uh, give his life over to God, and maybe he has. I don't know. To say the perpetrator is not a victim would be wrong on my part, too, because there is a story there as well. He has his own story. Um, And I don't know it fully or truly, but apparently he was someone that was trying to wage war against his own sexual addiction. And within that process... Uh, he basically felt that he needed to eliminate some of the sources of his addiction. And so he went to these massage parlors to try to eliminate the sources of the temptation, which is... Uh, yeah, there's a, there's a lot to talk about that. We'll get into that in a second. But a lot of stuff that came up about this was this idea of purity culture. And I saw some comments on Facebook like, oh, evangelicals, we just got to burn this whole thing to the ground and start over. Evangelicalism as a whole is rotten to the core. It's like, okay, so that's a whole different story. I'm going to go into work. I'm going to come back, and we're going to talk about that whole bit of purity culture. So this next story I want to consider is that of purity culture. And... I think it's, I mean, honestly, I I was kind of shocked to look into this because I grew up this way. I kind of grew up with this whole thing, and, and 
to me, this is one of those things where it's like, wow, there's a lot of criticism about this. I feel like this is one of those things that was done with very good intentions. Oh my gosh. Um, but, but, um, it seems like there's been a lot of, how do I put this? Backlash against it. And there's been a lot of harm done by it at the same time. So, and, and I don't feel like what this gentleman, if you can call him a gentleman, uh, did, you can blame 100% on purity culture. Obviously, what happens in a person when they get to the point where they're going to get to the point where they're willing to take the lives of other people is, is a whole study in and of itself. But it is, I imagine, one of these things where it's just stress upon stress upon stress of factor upon factor upon factor until finally it blows. Um, and so we have to look at all those different factors there and see what those factors were. And then you try to figure out, okay, what was it? Well, you're not going to find just one little thing. It's going to be a lot of little things that are just on top of each other that can lead to that. And, and, and even then, you know, you can't just say it's just the factors because it's not just the factors. There's hundreds of thousands of people that live with each of those factors and more every day and they don't go out and they don't take this to the streets and cause that unless the prevalence of these mass shootings which will be a different topic for a different day are, are increasing and so we need to look and see okay what is the deal going on here but this whole thing about purity culture it was it was really interesting I mean I I mean I grew up I never had a promise ring but I definitely grew up in the evangelical church growing up and and purity was one of those things that was very talked about um and it was even then not necessarily well talked about it was just one of those things that was understood and there were times that it was brought together. Now, when I'm looking at this thing for the purity culture, even just this morning to do my research, it seems like the most outspoken uh, critics of it have been women who grew up in that sense. And sadly, they have been traumatized. And, and in a sense, they, they have felt that the message of purity within the evangelical church came to be that of the following. And there's been a few books written about this, such as Every Man's Battle, which I have glanced over once in my life. I never read it. I just lightly skimmed through it um, in about five minutes, and that was it. So I am not a, I'm not a critic of the book, nor can I support it, nor can I really say much because I haven't had a chance to really dig into it myself. Um, but it seems like there's been a lot of um, gender disequal assumptions brought to the table when we talk about sexual purity. One is that uh, men are driven primarily by sexual impulses. And there's going to be a lot to talk about this, but these sexual impulses are impure of themselves as long as they're outside the bounds of marriage. So the idea of looking at a woman is with lustful thoughts or just even with lust, or even if you just look at a woman, trust me, the lust will show up, according to these books, uh, then... Therefore, you must not look at women. You gotta just, just quote unquote, bounce your eyes and, and look at different things and all this kind of stuff. Right? Okay, and I understand that. That makes sense. Biblical mandate is there. Um, <clears throat> the thing that falls out of that, though, is that now the onus becomes upon, and it, it's not like it's, it's. Sometimes it is said. Sometimes it is said. The onus comes upon the women for them not to dress in such a way that could potentially provoke a man. Now. Uh, there is, there's problems with that. There's problems with that. Yes, I think there is dignity within dressing modestly. However, 
to think that a woman is 100% at fault for causing a man to become impure because of the way she is dressed, I think is ridiculous. Uh, I mean, that's just baloney. I mean, the guy has the responsibility to do it. And it's as if you could, as if you could, control the way that women dress in the church, if you could do that, which does happen in some places. They're probably more akin to cults than churches. Uh, Then, what happens when the guy steps outside the church? So he can only be in the church? And even then, even then, let's, let's be honest, even in Latin America, I've seen in many places where the women are controlled in how they are dressed. And so it said, no, you cannot wear pants because that is now a man's item of clothing. And so many of the very evangelical women will not wear pants. They will not wear makeup, but they will have very long hair. But, and not all of them, but some of them will have, uh, will have skirts on. But man, I mean... Some of these girls must be sewing them skirts on themselves because there ain't no way they're getting in there and there's no way they're getting out of it. I mean, those things are tight. I mean, you can read their pulses through the skirts. It's, it's crazy. And so I don't say that to, to criticize. I'm just saying, well, if the point is to dress modestly. And I'm like, I'm not going to wear pants. Well, you're kind of missing the point. But all that to say, it's not, the onus is not upon the woman to make sure the man doesn't become impure. That's not the point. The point is that the man is in charge of himself to not become impure. Uh, And as Jesus rightly says, it's not what goes into a man that makes him impure, but what comes out of him. And you can't really control the world in which you work and live. If if you feel like the, the idea of just looking at women is so beyond your capabilities to stay impure, then I think Jesus says you just gotta gouge out your own eyes. That, that's really what it comes down to. It does not say, go and blame the women and tell them to dress differently. No. And how many interactions does Jesus have with prostitutes, and how many times do you see him chiding them on the way that they're dressing? You don't see that. It does not happen. Um, and there's just so much there that it's like, okay, so again, I feel like this is something that was so well-intentioned, but somehow it got off. And so it, it, it became this thing where it's like, okay, the man, yes, he's going to have sexual desires, so the women, they got to stop putting on these clothes and whatnot. Okay. And this was done in, with good intentions to, to try to stop teen pregnancies, to try to keep people pure before marriage. But can we talk about what does pure even mean? Can, can we go here real quick? Uh... Again, this idea of purity really is going to come from a dualistic understanding of the term. And this dualism is this Greek philosophy that says that everything that is physical is inherently evil. And that everything which is spiritual is inherently good. And this way of thinking has festered its way through the church through the centuries and millennia. And it is still very much present. Nonetheless, it is a heresy. It is completely wrong. Because when God made people, he made them physically. And he breathed his life into them. It was a fusion between physicality and spirit. And that is what we are. And God looked at us and said, it was good. And before he made us, he made a very physical world. And every step along the way, he looked at it and he said, it was good. And for me to come out and say everything that's physical is wrong is bad because God has said it was good. Now, and this is why it's very important to understand the difference between the world 
aka the cosmos, and I've talked about this in other other things, uh, the order that's out there, and the Earth being the physical planet which we're on. Yes, the world, the order is fallen, and yes, the physical Earth is caught up in the middle of that. And nature itself, the physical nature itself, is not nearly as good as God made it originally. Nonetheless, it still contains the echo of his voice. And to think and to despise all that is it that is physical and say, oh, this is wrong, that, that's not right. The sexual urge was put there by God himself. It is a commandment God gave to people. He gave it to animals to be reproductive and to multiply to reproduce, multiply, fill the earth. That is a commandment that is written in our DNA, and that is part of there. And so when you see these sexual urges come up, we say, oh, that's evil. I only got to do it within marriage. Yes and no. Uh, the fact that the sexual urge is there is not evil in and of itself by any stretch of the imagination. And you're going to have a very hard time, actually, uh, looking through the Bible and saying, hmm, sex is bad gonna have a very hard time finding that. With that said, there are certain boundaries and limitations upon sex, and I, I don't want to get too far into this because this is a whole different podcast, a different, different thing. But we live in a very different culture and age into which the Bible is written. Obviously, the Bible is written in a very different time uh, to a diff- very different culture. And within this culture, girls, the minute they were menstruating, were married off boys, the minute they were sexually capable, they were married off. The idea of adolescence just really didn't exist. That's kind of a, a, a creation of our modern world. And so in this weird between time where you're not a child and you're not an adult, so it's not really cool that you get married, but it's not really cool that your body is saying you really want to go out and reproduce, uh, you're in this kind of weird in-between spot. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying I want 13-year-olds to get married and go off. Now, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is the culture in which we live is slightly divorced from our biology. Just slightly, just slightly. And that doesn't mean that we need to change our culture to adapt to our biology, not necessarily. Nor does it mean we need to change our biology to adapt to our culture. This is a whole different topic for a different day. But what it does mean is that we've got incongruities that we've got to figure out. And they're not easy. They're not easy at all. And to sway from one side of the debate to the other side of the debate without really taking anything into account, eh, we got to be careful about that. we got to be very, very careful about that. All that to say, let's look... Um, uh, I mean, this, uh, okay, let's continue with the purity culture stuff. So, getting back to it, many... Oh, here's the other thing. Is that the idea that it's just men that have sexual impulses, not women. That women are, are not allowed to have sexual impulses, and if they do, they're impure. Uh, whereas men, it's just understood that's part of their nature. And yes, that's impure, except when you get in marriage, all of a sudden, boom, it becomes pure. Well, th- that's not really that's not really true. And, and this idea that you've got to stay pure until marriage, that all of a sudden, once you get to marriage, that there is no more question about purity, that kind of disappears, or that uh, it, it doesn't quite fit the biblical perspective, because the whole biblical testament, actually, about purity is about sexual relations being between uh, the man and his wife or uh, being honest concubines because if we go to the Old Testament we have this we have a lot of cases of polygamy and God's not saying hey don't do that 
But as we get to the Old Te- New Testament, we see now newer applications being applied. And specifically, we see that these applications are applied to the elders of the church. We can see this in the book of Titus, where he's like, hey, if somebody wants to be an elder, the leader of this thing, then they need to be just a husband of one wife. And so we take this as the, this is the option of the leader, and so this is how everyone should be, and we've moved into it. But again, there's a lot of cultural differences here. I mean, if I was to go to Nigeria, and there was a man who was going to convert, he became a Christian, he had 30 wives, I would not tell him to drop his 30 wives, not in a million years, because he is the economic sustainer of his 30 wives. And so now, you say, oh, no, no, you're a Christian, you can only be a, you can only be married to one of them, pick. Well, guess what I've just created? I've created 29 divorced women who now (laughs) have no economic support whatsoever, no emotional support, uh, no sexual support, and they're going to be on their own. And that's not a good thing to do. So the Bible is very culturally adapted. um, And in some ways, it very isn't. And so we've got to do the hard work and have the hard conversations about talking about these things and figuring this stuff out. (sighs) All that to say... I believe the, the whole thing of the purity culture is that it's, it's pushed an idea that sex is impure and it's wrong. And so all of a sudden you say, sex is wrong, 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 wrong. Don't even kiss when you go on a date. And now all of a sudden we get married. It's like, yeah, go nuts, go nuts. And it's like, hey, that's, that's a, that's a big jump. <laughs> that's a very big jump to make. Uh, and th- that needs to be worked through. You're not, <laughs> that's not an easy thing to do. So I, I feel like in some ways the church is, has, in its best efforts to try to maintain purity, we've kind of lost a lot of what could potentially be good things, and we've potentially done damage to people. Um, and so I've seen a lot of these cases that people bring up of this issue of purity, where it's like they've not been treated well, they, they have all these guilt remorse. Once they do get married, they're in marriage, they're like, ah, I feel terrible about having sex, and they shouldn't. They shouldn't. That's a God-given mandate. Uh, for, for them to be there. And that's a beautiful thing. It's great. It's wonderful. Go for it. And uh, you hear that also in the purity culture stuff too, but they say just do it within marriage. So what happens, what happens when we have these messages where it is a, everything is perfect once you get married. Everything is wrong when you're not married. <laughs> when you have this type of binary system going on uh, and you have someone like this shooter, who has a psychological issue, like sex addiction, which is sex addiction, I should say, which is a real psychological addiction, and many people suffer through. Sometimes it comes because of past sexual traumas, sometimes not. Um, but when you have that type of issue that they're dealing with something that's off, and they have this guilty message of like, every time you have sex out of marriage, that's wrong, you need to stay pure, and this is a person that could be, I mean, from what I've understood, people that are in this type of situation, they can have up to 13 sexual encounters in a day. Uh, it, it, I, just the amount of disconnect you're living through is, is strong, very strong. And that needs to be handled, I would say, suggest, with professional help, because I don't think it's something that most people uh, are really capable of dealing with. I know I wouldn't be. Um, all I have to say, it's uh, it's not an easy situation. So, uh, going back to the purity culture again, I, I, I don't want to just be like, yeah, this is terrible, kick it out. No, because I feel like this was something that was done with good intentions. It has a biblical basis. Yes, it's there. Has it made mistakes along the way? 
Absolutely. I feel like anything is. And, and even something that's done with the best intentions, made from the best minds, with the best practice and everything, when it gets out into public practice, it's going to be screwed up. And the truth is, we all screw up everything. All of us. Everything. <laughs> None of us get it dead on right. And, and errors do happen. And there are victims of those errors. It's one thing when we have a victim of an intentional evil doing. It's another thing when we have victims of unintentional good doing. Um, and and the, the good that is being in, intended is not met. And I feel like that's where the majority of our errors lie. It's like, we're t- I'm trying to do something good here. I just am not that great at it. And I think I'm pretty good at it. So I'm not going to go through all the effort to really learn how to do it really well. But I'm, I'm just going to go for it. And uh, do that. It's probably like this podcast. Or who knows what kind of mess I'm creating with this thing. But it's like, I'm going to try it. I, I, I think in the great balance of things, the amount of good I'm going to do is more than the amount of evil I'm going to do. So I'm, I'm going to give it a shot. Yes, it's not going to be perfect. I'm going to get it going. And the truth is, if, if you just wait to try to do it perfect, you'll never do anything. I, I Much of, of the mindset, you need to do the ready, shoot, aim model. It's like sometimes you just need to get out there, figure it out, and then... And then you need to close that cycle back and like, okay, where do we where do we go wrong? Or how, how can we make this better? There needs to be a continual strive for improvement. Nonetheless, um, uh, I mean, uh, there, there needs to be a better understanding within the church of sexuality. These, these are topics that need to be talked about openly, frankly. Uh, and there does not to need to be any sort of like, oh, guys are going to be guys. You know that. They got sexual needs. Well, women do too. And uh, to sideline that is not great. Um, also overgeneralizations are not helpful at all because just as there are people along, oh gosh, let me think of an example. I can't think of an example. I'm not going to, I'm not going to try to compare it. There's a whole lot of people along the spectral, the sexual spectrum. Um, and even just talking about level of sexual desire, it goes all over the place and that crosses, uh, gender Completely. So, I mean, you can have a woman that has much more sexual desire than a man, and a man can have much more sexual desire than a woman, or they can be equal. And it, it can vary by day to day, week to week, month to month, season to season. These are things that are that are in flux. Uh, and, and to generalize does not work at all. I mean, that, that's not the thing. I think the best thing to do is like, listen, we are all going to have sexual desires. That, that comes from God. And there may be some of us that really have no sexual desire, and you feel guilty of the fact you don't have sexual desires. And let's talk about that. Uh, but let's not generalize what it is, but let's say, okay, what is the, what is the God given way to work through this? And let's be clear about the idea of the solution is not just get married. Oh, I have sexual desires. Therefore my solution is get married. Oh boy. <laughs> Should I pull out the long string of divorces that's come out of that one? Uh, that, that's not, that's not a good idea either. So, um, we need to be trained and working and working with God on how to do this. And I think we need to understand the concept of purity in the whole sense that you're not pure until marriage. You stay pure through marriage. Purity is a way of acting. It's a way of thinking. It's a way of working. It's a way of sexual activity. It's a way of sexual inactivity. And that needs to encompass the whole bit of it. Um, And this has been understood through the church. And we have many people to go back and look at. I would recommend we go back and we look at the monks. Then we go back and we look at the nuns. And we go back and look at how did these people deal with their sexual desires? 
how have they done it well? How have they not done it well? And what can we learn at? Well, what can we learn from to do it? I'm reminded of the story, reminded of the story of St. Francis when he was dealing with his temptations and he, uh, apparently he was so tempted sexually, he just didn't know what to do with himself. And so he was so ah, looking for this release that he threw himself in a bed of roses. And as he threw himself in the bed of roses to cause himself pain to free him from his, his sexual impulses at this point, miracle of miracles happened and the roses lost all their thorns as he fell into them and he did not get a single scratch nor lose a single drop of blood and if you go to uh, Assisi Italy you can see this bed of roses that's there and they, and they don't have thorns on them and supposedly they've been the same bed of thorns for the past 700 800 years uh, and, and they haven't changed they don't have thorns on them so the story goes I don't know all that to say is that we need to dig into this there, there's resources out there and historical resources we can look into and there's probably modern resources as well or we can look into this conundrum where it's like, hmm, I have sexual desires, I'm not married, what am I supposed to do with this? Uh, and in such a way that is honoring and glorifying of both men and women and the relationship between both of them. Now, all that to say, even with all that, the, the, the stuff, good and bad, mixed bag that comes with the whole purity culture thing, um, that, again, is just another weight on top of this guy, and that, to me, does not excuse him. Nor does that say, look, we have one person who has done this, therefore, let's get rid of everything for everybody. No, I, I think it's giving us a light to look at some issues within our own ranks, and that's a good thing to look at, but that does not mean we need to be judging each other and casting blame and saying, oh, this is all the fault of the evangelical church writ large. No, not, that's not the case. Um, yes, we're not a perfect group of people by any stretch of the imagination at all. Uh, and we need, to, we need to repent of a lot of bad things that we have done. Nonetheless, there is, I believe there is hope for us if we're willing to look and, and look into it. What made that movement? What made that movement to actually go and do that? And, and I can't read this guy's mind. I don't know. I can't justify him. Many times I look at violence and I try to find what is the inequality that exists here. I go back to Cain and Abel. I see, okay, there's some sort of inequality here. What is it? I feel like he had an inequality that he would possibly was comparing himself to other guys. Like they don't have the same addiction. They don't have the same problem. Or maybe he's finding guys that do have the same problem. They're all struggling with the same thing. And he's like, I'm going to solve the problem. It's violence through efficiency. So I'm going to go out and shoot uh, these women that I think might be engaged in sexual activities. Maybe they are, maybe they aren't. I don't know. I don't think it really matters at this point. Um, but the idea is that, I mean, I, I don't know. I don't really know. But I'm tempted. I'm tempted to say, you know, this is a question of, of uh, violence via efficiency. I'm trying to solve a problem. The problem cannot be solved on my own. And therefore, by normal means, therefore, I must use violence to solve it. And that's not an easy thing to deal with. Um, we'll get into this more in other topics. But anyways, that's my two cents about this. Lord, have mercy on us. Help us to do good in all things. I need to go. My son is here. He's looking at me. I do have food, Soren. And everybody wants to eat dinner. So be blessed. Do well. Let's forgive each other. Let's learn from each other. Let's have mercy on each other. And let's try to seek God with all of our heart and hope that he will 
guide us and direct us in all things. Many prayers and blessings upon all those who have lost loved ones for the family of this uh, guy who did this. I know they just must be absolutely distraught thinking that their son did this, uh, and I don't even know how he's thinking. So, Lord, have mercy on us all. May we learn from this that we may not repeat it. Give us grace. Give us grace, Lord Jesus. Come soon. Maranatha.